Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11 is our text for this morning. This is the 29th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans was written by a missionary. One of the reasons why Paul wrote the letter was in order to raise money to go on a missionary journey to Spain. The heart of God is missions, and since that is true, I would sincerely ask all of you to pray and ask the Lord whether or not He wants you to be a foreign missionary. If He does, then you should go. If He does not, there's one thing for sure that I know that He does want you to do. That is, He wants you to assist in sending missionaries. One simple and minor way that you can do that in this Christmas season would be for you to send an email or a card or perhaps purchase a gift and get it to one of our missionaries. Perhaps they are a little bit homesick in this season and hearing from you would be a great encouragement to them. Today's message is 39 handwritten pages and the title of the message today is A Matter of Life and Death. Please turn to Romans chapter 6 and as you are turning I want you to have it in the forefront of your mind that God loves you. Don't ever forget that as I'm preaching this sermon. Don't ever forget that for the rest of your life. Remember that God loves you and hear the word of the Lord. We're going to be covering verses 3 through 11, but for context, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of Romans 6. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set free. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven today, as we consider the subject of union with Christ and how that makes a difference in what we believe and how we live, I pray, God, that you would grant the dear people of this church powers of concentration, that you would cause their minds to be alert, uh, that they would track with the message, that they would listen to, understand, contemplate what is being said, and, and Lord, understand it. Lord, I pray that there would be more than that is ha that is happening. I pray that there would be a softening of every heart. Lord, even in places where we do not understand exactly what Paul is saying, I pray, Lord, that, Lord, our hearts would be soft and our wills would be inclined to do what it is you want us to do. And so, Lord, reveal that to us today and grant it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Here's my outline today. It is a three-point outline. Point number one is death. Point number two is life. And point number three is so what? I am continually amazed and perplexed by the book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul. It seems to me, and this is not an exaggeration, that every week as I sit to study, I say to myself and also to my wife, what I am dealing with right now in front of me is the hardest passage in the book. I'm not, I did, I said it this week, but I say it every week. It is difficult to understand and interpret. And each week that I say that to myself and to my wife, it is a genuine concern. So take this week, for example, after reading seven commentaries, I stopped and I said to Anna, I am really stuck. It's, it's not that I disagree with anything that anybody is saying. I have no idea what they are saying. And, and by the way, I'm halfway convinced that they didn't know what they were saying either. And they made what they were saying to be purposefully ambiguous so that nobody would know that they didn't know what they were saying. But all that to say, even if they did know what they were saying, they certainly didn't know how to communicate it to me. I did not know what the passage was about. Usually, I find help in a number of commentaries. This week, there were only three that were able to help me, and there's only one that I'm going to use to help me, and that is a commentary written by John Stott. He was an Anglican uh, priest who lived in England. He died in the year 2011. He's going to be the only one that's actually going to help us this morning. Well, Every week that we study, it just gets harder and harder. And I'm sure that next week is going to be harder than this week. I'm not joking when I say that Romans is the most difficult book in the Bible by far that I have ever had to interpret. It's interesting in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, that Peter, and Peter knew his stuff pretty well, Peter writes about the letters of Paul, and he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Uh, so if Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, humbly admits that Paul's writings are sometimes hard to grasp, well, then we ourselves should not feel ashamed to admit that from time to time we need to say to Paul, Paul, you lost me. I'm really baffled. I, I don't actually know what you mean. Uh, I happen to be in that category with some of our material this morning. But just because it is difficult to understand, uh, that doesn't mean that it is not attainable. And, and just because Paul's writings are sometimes puzzling, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't work as hard as we can at least to attempt to comprehend what he is saying. Uh, we should give it our all along with everything else that we study in the Bible. And for the preacher, as well as the congregant, this is a dual responsibility. You see, it is my job to study and to prepare and then to stand before you and to present God's Word in an understandable way. Now, I'm not always going to get it right, but I always need to try to get it right. I don't always connect with you, but I always need to give it my best effort. Likewise, you're not always going to be able to understand everything that is said from the pulpit perfectly. But you have to try. You have a job in being here this morning and every Sunday morning in church, and that is to reverently and humbly listen to the Word of God and engage your mind with a soft and willing heart and believe and apply and obey the Word of God. In other words, we got to work together here. So let us, that is both of us, 
get to work on what I believe to be the toughest passage so far in the book of Romans. Now, by way of context, back in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul has said that we do not sin for the purpose of giving God an opportunity to magnify the magnificence of His grace. In other words, we don't make a mess just to demonstrate how powerful the vacuum cleaner is. No, no way, God forbid. Uh, how can we who died to sin, and by that, remember, to die to sin means that Christ died for us. How can we who died to sin live habitually in it as a lifestyle? And the implied answer is we can't go on living that way. Why not? Well, that is answered in verses 3 through 11, which we're going to be looking at today. Now, a few minutes ago, I read the text in its entirety. A cursory reading of the text without studying at all, not studying it in any way whatsoever, is going to leave you with one immediate impression. And that is that Paul is contrasting life and death, or more accurately, death and life. Uh, look at your Bible and look at the ridiculous amount of references to death and life. Verse 3, death. Verse 4, buried in death. Verse 5, death. Verse 6, crucified. Verse 7, died. Verse 8, died. Verse 9, death, die, death. Verse 10, death and died. So even if you don't know what these verses mean, you certainly know what he is talking about. He is talking in some way about death. Concerning life, there's also a lot of ink given to that. Verse 4, we have the words raised and life. Verse 5, resurrection. Verse 6, live. Verse 9, raised. Verse 10, life. And then the word lives twice. And thus the title of today's sermon, A Matter of Life and Death. Now, there are many things in these nine verses that I do not understand. Like currently, I'm standing in front of you right now, and I still don't know what they mean. In fact, I could perhaps exhaust the remainder of our sermon time by pointing out things which are beyond my understanding, but that's not going to help either one of us. I do, however, want to state this. There will be portions of the text uh, which I am not even going to attempt to explain. When you walk out today and you say to your neighbor, hey, what did Pastor Ed say about verse so-and-so? I don't think he said anything. That's right. I didn't say anything. You didn't miss it. I didn't say it. And the reason I'm not going to say it, number one, is because I'm not exactly sure what it means. And number two, because there is no solid consensus among commentators as to what it means. They also seem to be guessing, and they are, for the most part, guessing in different directions. All that to say, let's go today with what we do know, with what is plain and clear and we will start with point number one, and that is death. Everything that I'm going to be talking about for the next several minutes has to do with death from the text. Now remember, back in verse 2, Paul mentions the one who is dead to sin. What does that mean? Well, whatever it means, it is illustrated through baptism in verse 3. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. What are we talking about here? Well, it is referred to, first of all, 
in terms which they did understand. And we know that they did understand it because he starts off with the words, do you not know? Or are you ignorant? Uh, that little phrase implies that they do indeed know what he is about to address. And whatever it is, whatever it is, it helps to explain what it means to be or to have died to sin. And what is the illustration? The illustration is baptism. Now, some people say that this is spiritual baptism or baptism in the spirit, but I think it's pretty clear that what Paul is referring to here is water baptism. You see, baptism for the first century Christian was a given. Um, what if Paul were to encounter a Christian who had not been baptized? Well, that's an interesting question, but the answer to it is the Apostle Paul never encountered a Christian who was not baptized. For to claim to be saved and not be baptized with water was unheard of in the first century. Now, notice he does not command them to be baptized. Jesus commanded people to be baptized, as did Peter and did the apostles. Paul merely assumes that they have already been baptized. It would be like this. A team is getting ready to play a football game. The coach walks into the locker room. All of his players are dressed and ready to go onto the field, except for one guy who's sitting there in his street clothes. And the coach says, aren't you going to put your uniform on? And the player says, you never told me that I had to. The coach would say, I didn't think that I needed to tell you that you needed to. It was pretty much assumed that if you were going to play football, you'd be wearing the uniform. Paul doesn't tell them to be baptized. He assumes already that they know that they are to be baptized and that they have indeed been baptized. He speaks in language as if they have already been baptized because they have. Now, he does not say that baptism is required for salvation, for it is not. Paul has already spent five chapters in the book of Romans driving home the point that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works, including the works of baptism. You can't work your way into heaven by keeping the law. You can't work your way into heaven by being baptism. Water baptism does not save you. However, if you are saved, you will both be willing to and desirous to be baptized. Why? Because it is commanded in Scripture. In the Great Commission, Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, you're supposed to go everywhere. And as you go, you are to make disciples. And what are you supposed to do with those disciples? Well, you are to be teaching them to observe everything that I taught you. Another thing that you are to do with those disciples is you are to be baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to say to you today, by way of application, if you profess to be a Christian, and yet you have not been baptized after you were saved by immersion into water, you cannot find yourself anywhere in the New Testament. You, you don't exist in the Bible. Uh, but that is not Paul's point. His point, assuming that they have already been baptized, is that as a result of that, they understand something about that baptism, or do you not know? And what is it that they understand about that baptism? It is that it in some way symbolizes the death of Jesus. You see, when you agree to go under the water, what you're saying is, I identify with Jesus. 
I understand that he died for me. And going under the water is a symbol. It symbolizes, it is a sign. I believe that he died for me. I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, I was there too. And I was in union with him and I was joined to him. Uh, by the way, you do not get this imagery with sprinkling. You do not get this imagery by doing it or administering it to a baby who has no understanding. Baptism, even the word itself, means to dip or to dunk. Baptism by immersion administered to a believer after they have been saved. The person understands the significance of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, that is Paul's point. Water baptism symbolizes the death of Jesus. Now, we need to be very careful about something. Paul is not saying, and nor does it say anywhere in the Bible, that you can be sure that you are saved simply by being baptized. Uh, here's the first quote from John Stott. Stott says very succinctly, baptism does not by itself secure what it signifies. Baptism by itself does not secure what it signifies, end quote. You see, baptism is a sign, and signs do not always produce the intended design. No parking. Sometimes people park there. Uh, sometimes there is a stop sign, and people choose to blow through the stop sign, or they don't see the stop sign, but in either case, they are not obeying the stop sign. They don't hit the brakes. Just because there's a sign, it can be a perfectly good sign in a very good spot, which can be very clear, doesn't always accomplish what it's designed to do. Uh, you see, baptism is a beautiful sign of our identity with Christ's death, but it is absolutely useless unless and until we really do believe in his death as the payment for our sins. So, for example, in Acts chapter 8, you have a man by the name of Simon the sorcerer. He was baptized, but yet he was not saved. Just because you are baptized does not mean that you are saved. If you are saved, you should be baptized. You will be baptized if you are saved. But if you are baptized, that does not necessarily mean that you are saved. There are baptized unsaved people. Here's the question. Are you saved? Well, I'm going to assume, just like Paul, that you are saved. That's the people I'm talking to right now. And I'm going to assume that you have been baptized. And from that... From verse 3, I want to remind you of what Paul is saying here, and that is a symbol of Christ's death. And what do you do with someone that is dead? Well, you bury them. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into what? Into death. Remember, point number one is death. This is talking about the burial of Christ. Uh, the burial is something you do to someone who has died. And so if you have been united to Christ, you are with him in his death, you're with him in his burial. Now, let me just stop right here and, and make sure that you are very, very clear on something. Um, this, uh, once again, means that we were there at the cross. Uh, we felt no pain at the cross, nor will we ever feel any pain for our sin. Uh, we paid no price. We're not capable of paying any price. But we were still there 
in that we were joined to Christ, so that when Christ died for our sins, so did we. We did not pay, he did, but we were still there. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, I was, because I was joined to Christ. As we move on to verse 6, remember the overarching point, it's death. Verse number 6 is the toughest verse in the text, so we need you to put on your thinking cap and to concentrate and notice what he is saying on the subject of death here. Verse 6 says, we know for certain that our old self, hang on to that phrase, old self, our old self was crucified with him. Here's the purpose for it. In order that the body of sin, that's the second thing it says about us. The first thing is that we have an old self. The second thing is that there's a body of sin. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that or with the intended goal that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, this is tough. Let's take it apart piece by piece. First of all, there are two distinct and very different descriptions of our state that are spelled out in verse 6. One of them is our old self. The second one is the body of sin. The old self means who we used to be in Adam before we were saved, our pre-conversion state. And what happened to the old me? Well, it was crucified with him at the cross on Mount Calvary in AD 33. This is not a reference to us, we ourselves in 2023, putting to de death the deeds of the flesh. This is not a cross reference to Galatians 5.24. Galatians 5.24 is a wonderful verse. It looks kind of the same. They mean entirely different things. Galatians 5.24 says, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Wonderful verse. You need to know it. It has nothing to do with our text today because in Galatians chapter 5, it is talking about something that we do. In Galatians, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, it is not a reference to you doing anything. It is what has already been done for you. The old self was crucified with him. In that, we are passive. And notice that death, remember our overarching point, number one is death, that death, which occurred on Mount Calvary in AD 33, had a purpose. It wasn't just done, but it was done with a purpose. And what was the purpose? Verse 6, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Body of sin is the second thing that it says about us, and this is a reference to our flesh which we still have, we are still walking around in this body of sin. It is a reference to our flesh, our fallen nature. It doesn't say, and it doesn't mean that this will ever be completely eliminated and completely eradicated. Here's our second John Stott quote. Here's what it does mean. It means rather that our selfish nature has been defeated, disabled, and deprived of its power, end quote. You see, both the old self and the body of sin are dealing with the subject of death. One is the basis for the other. Christ's death took place in order to take care of our old self so that in our daily living, our body of sin, that is the flesh, might be disabled. Uh, here is the 
Third quote from John Stott, and this one is a beauty. Stott says, The first, that is the old self, is a legal death, a death to the penalty of sin. And the second, that is the body of sin, the second is a moral death, a death to the power of sin. The first belongs to the past and is unique and unrepeatable. The second, which is the body of sin, belongs to the present and is repeatable, even continuous, end quote. And he's absolutely right. Or to put it another way, the first one, old self, is talking about justification. The second one, body of sin, is talking about sanctification. Let's keep moving on. Remembering that the point, point number one, is about death. Let's see what it says about death in verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. I just want to tell you that this is a bad translation in the ESV. The word should not be set free or free from sin. The word should be justified from sin. Uh, now, I think most of your ESV Bibles will have a footnote. Remember, I told you two weeks ago, I am not a Greek scholar. But the word here is the word that Paul uses everywhere else for the word justify. And it really clarifies the meaning if you put in the word justify instead of the words set free. Namely, that there is a death and therefore there is no longer any guilt because a death has taken place for the wages of sin is death. Again, listen to John Stott in his fourth quote. We deserve to die for our sin. And in fact, we did die, though not in our own person but in the person of Jesus Christ, our substitute, who died in our place, end quote. Are you getting this? He's saying, you did die. You, you, you definitely did die, but you didn't feel the death. It was a death which died, which was died for you. I don't even know if that's a real sentence. Uh, you were there when Christ died, and that is the death that you died, and that is the death that counts. Therefore, verse 7 is saying that when we died with Christ, we were justified, and therefore there is no longer any debt to pay. Moving on, on the subject of death, we have one more verse to look at, and that is verse 10. It says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. What does it mean that he died to sin? Well, remember last week when we were looking at verse 2 and, and we talked about ourselves, we who have died to sin. Remember, we said that that does not mean that you are like a corpse with reference to sin, that you no longer feel the effects of it. But, but, but what does it mean? It means that Christ died for your sins. In the same way here, when it says that Christ died to sin, it does not mean that he stopped being one who sin had control over him because sin never had control over him. It means that he died for our sins. Uh, that's what death to sin means. Remember, we quote all the time, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. 
that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, or Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly, He's speaking about the gospel. That's what it means that Christ died to sin. Now, in just a few moments, I'm going to move on to point number two. But before I move on to point number two, first of all, I want to acknowledge that this sermon is unconventional. I normally don't do what I am doing today. I know that you know, but I just want to make sure that you know that I know that you know that I have not followed any flow of argument in this text. I I have not presented any logical progression. The thoughts have not been built upon one another. What I'm doing so far is sort of like putting a, a jigsaw puzzle in front of you. We have opened the box. We have dumped all the pieces onto the table. We've turned all the pieces face up. And I've taken all the red pieces and I've moved them to one side of the table. I have not even connected them. All I have done is just assemble them in a pile. All of these red verses deal with death. I I, I, I haven't put them together. I've just sort of isolated them on one side of the table in order to make one point. And what is that one point? Death. What are you saying about death? What is your overarching point about death? I don't have one. I'm just saying it's talking about death. What do we know about death so far? Well, we know that it is symbolic in baptism. We know that it has to do with our union with Christ. We know that Christ died a substitutionary death for us. We know that there is a death to our sinful living. We know that death is uh, something which was used in order to justify us. That is the death of Christ. And we know that the one-time act of death by Jesus was for us. A lot of talk about death, and that's a really negative topic to be talking about at Christmas. But I'm going to argue that it is the most positive news that you could ever hear at Christmas. Here's what you have. Merry Christmas. Somebody died for you on a cross so that you yourself will not have to die eternally in hell. Somebody died for you on a cross so that you can escape the slavery of sin right now. The gospel is of first importance. Now, let's move on quickly to point number two. By contrast, we've already talked about death. Now we're going to talk about life. Point number two, life. We're going to look at each of the verses which speak of life. And the first one is verse 4. What does it say? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Was there any purpose? Yes. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What do we know about life here? Well, we know that Jesus came back to life, and from this verse, we know that it was done through the glory of the Father, and the word glory there is referring to through God the Father's power. And so what you have in baptism is this beautiful picture of a person going down under the water and then coming up out of the water, and then going under the water is a picture of the death of Christ, and then coming out of the water is a picture of the resurrection of Christ. It's beautiful. It is speaking about life. Was there any reason for this? Yes, there was a reason for this, and that's spelled out in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and this could better be translated, or at least it could be translated, if we have been united with him in a death like his, and we have, or since we have been united with him in a death like his, 
Where's the life portion? Well, we certainly, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice the logic that Paul is saying here. He's saying, were you united with Christ in his death? Yes or no? Yes. All right. Well, does it not stand to reason then if you were united with him in his death that you would also be united with him in his resurrection? Or to put it another way, is there any logic in believing that we went with Jesus to the cross and there at the cross he paid for our sins and then he went to the grave and he was buried and we went with him there to that burial. And then Jesus was raised from the dead and he said to us, you stay here, I'm being raised. No, if we died with him, we will also live with him. We are with him for the entire ride. There's no logic whatsoever which says that we died with Christ and then when he rose, he left us in the grave. No, when he arose, so did we. So not only is he alive, but just as surely as he is alive, I too, spiritually speaking, am alive with him. This is the doctrine of union with Christ or being joined to Christ both in his death and in his life. Verse number eight is essentially a repeat of verse number five. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Died with him? Yes, I believe that. Well, then take hope for the future because you also live with him. Verse nine states that this resurrection, remember the point is life, has effects, and these effects are permanent, and these effects are eternal. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. No longer, death no longer has dominion over him. When Lazarus was raised, this is, this is important, he was not resurrected, he was resuscitated. Was he dead? Yeah, he was dead. I mean, he was, he was in there for four days. When he came back to life. He was not resurrected. He was resuscitated, meaning that Lazarus had to die again. We have some students visiting us from the University of Georgia. One of them is from Columbia, South Carolina. Anna and I used to live in Columbia, South Carolina. So we were familiar with all of the prominent churches there and all of the excellent pastors in that city back in the mid-1980s. And it just so happens that one young man happened to uh, go to this church in Columbia, South Carolina, and I asked him about this prominent pastor from the mid-1980s. He wasn't a kid back then. And I said, surely he's dead by now. And the response of this young man was, I said, surely he's dead. And he said, no, he came back. And he just stopped right there. And uh, wait, 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 he was like dead and then he came back? No, what he meant to say was, no, he's not dead. He retired and he left and then we had a reunion service and he came back to preach for us. But it sounded like he was saying that he came back to life. When we are talking about people in the Bible who died and then come back, they're going to die again. What happened to Jesus is unique. It was a resurrection and that he is not only alive, but he is alive forevermore, never to die again. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
So the question needs to be asked, what difference does it make to us that Jesus is never going to die again? Once again, I point you to the doctrine of union with Christ. I mean, we think about this. We are going to heaven and you are told in heaven you're never going to die. Have you ever considered why it is in heaven that you are never going to die? It's not because the living conditions there are conducive and suitable toward longevity. The reason that you will never die in heaven is because he will never die. And if we are joined to him by faith and he lives forever, then we are too going to live forever. One more verse about life. Remember, we're on point number two and it's talking about life. And that's verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The life he lives, he lives to God. Uh, in, in other words, he lives it to the glory of God. Now, if Christ is your life, and he is your life, and if Christ is alive, and he is alive, and if you have been joined to him in his life, and you have been joined to him in his life, and if what he does in his life is bring glory to God, Jesus said, I always do those things which are pleasing to him. He, he, his, his main goal was only and always to please the Father. Does it not then stand to reason that we who have been raised with him ought also to live our lives to the glory of God, seeing as how we owe our very spiritual existence to him? Ought we also not in our own lives to be living unto God just as the one who we are joined to is living unto God that is for the glory of God. Or to put it another way, do you see the incongruity? Do you see the incongruity of saying, what a gospel! Hallelujah! My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Why? Because I was joined to Christ. When he died, I died. And amen, that sin was buried in a grave and it's not going to come out. But, but, but I was joined to Christ and when he came to life, I came to life and Christ is my life and I have believed in him and I love him and I know him and he is my life and he is alive and the life that he now lives, he lives unto the glory of God. Thank you so much for such a wonderful salvation. But as I am living my life in the here and now, I'm going to live it for myself. And I'm going to do as I please. And I'm going to live it for my flesh. And I'm going to follow my impulses. And I'm going to live for sin. And I'm going to live for the devil. Do you see the incongruity there? It, it just doesn't add up. The resurrection of Christ has to make a difference in how we live. Now, once again, I brought point number two to a close. There has not yet been any logical progression which I've given you in the text. There's been no flow of thought. Just a bunch of thoughts. Remember before we had death, that was the red pile. Now we have life, that's the green pile. What have you done with that green pile? Nothing. I've just kind of moved it to one side of the table. A bunch of thoughts about life. Perhaps, even though we just have two piles that, where the pieces aren't even connected, you have been able to detect that there is death and that there is life and that they are contrasted. And certainly, 
And here's the reason why I don't apologize for this sermon. There's been a ton of gospel in this sermon. Maybe more gospel than I preach in most of my sermons because what is the gospel? It's nothing more than the death and the life of Jesus Christ. So we've talked a lot about death and life as it relates to Christ. However, Paul's point is not just to teach us some things about death and life, but he has another goal, another focus. He has a point, and the point is that all of this theological information is supposed to make a difference. And so for that difference, I turn you to point number three, and that is, so what? Uh, all of this rich theology most of which I will admit I have just lightly skimmed, but all of this rich theology has a threefold purpose or three stated intentions in the text. Now, these three stated purposes are not isolated. They are not enumerated. Uh, they are not on your list of things to do for homework, but they are intertwined and they are anchored in the text and they are propelled by no fewer than 20 references to death and life, mostly in reference to the death and life of Jesus Christ. And Paul does a lot more in speaking about the rationale behind why we are to do what he is about to tell us to do than he does in the points of application themselves. And that is key, that we cannot just jump into these points of application, but we need to remember that there is something driving, there is something anchoring, there is something propelling these points of application, and that is the death and life of Jesus Christ and us being joined to him. So you have these practical take-home points that I am about to give you, but we cannot forget the death and life of Jesus Christ as I spell them out. Because if we forget that, there is no power to actually live them out because the power comes from the gospel. So what is number one? So what number one is this? Newness of life. Once again, I direct you to verse 4. For we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that. Look at those three words. That tells you that this was done for a reason. So, so why did all of that happen, Paul? It happened in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There is a bottom line goal here, and that is us walking in newness of life. Uh, our union with Christ has an end goal, us walking in newness of life. What that means is very simple. A lot in this passage which is complex, which I don't understand. Here's one thing that I do get. When we become saved... We live differently than we used to. We have a new life. Uh, notice, this is really important, this is not a command. Paul is not saying to them, I have a command for you and the command is this, live a new life. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, if one has already been saved and baptized, and remember, Baptism doesn't save you, but all saved people in the first century were baptized. If one is saved and baptized, they will live differently. Now, that is not to say that they won't slip. 
If we say we have no sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. We all offend in many ways. And that is not to say that we are all going to grow at the same rate. No, there are some people that are going to grow faster than others. There are going to be periods of our life where we grow faster than at other periods of our life. And sometimes it happens very slowly. But it is to say a person who has actually been joined to Christ in his death and resurrection, they will live differently. They have believed in him. They are saved. And they are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anybody is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. For one thing, you are going to start to talk differently than you used to talk. You're going to have a different language. Why? Because you're around Christians and they talk nicely and now you're going to start to talk nicely? No, that's, that's, that's not it. It's because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if you have a new heart, that which will flow from your new heart is not going to be the vile filth which was coming out of it previously. It's not going to be the gossip and, 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 and the anger which was there previously. You're going to speak differently because you have a new heart. You will not be content with the worldly friends that you used to have. You just can't run with them the way you used to. Two things are going to happen. Number one, they're going to lose you, but but you're also going to lose them. Can two walk together lest they be agreed? And something else is going to happen is you're strangely going to develop this love for the people of God. Hereby we know that we have passed from death into life because we have love for the brethren. We do not come into the love of God by having love for the brethren, but if we are in Christ, there's just going to be this strange, inexplicable love that we have for one another. And you are not going to be content to be away from the people of God, and you're certainly not going to be content to be absent from worship or absent from fellowship. You will detect something is wrong and you will get back to the people of God and back to worship very quickly. The person who says, yes, I have been saved, but I never go to church, it, it, they are not saved. Someone wrote a tract once, and I, I, I think it's a little brash, but I think it's correct. It says, go to church or go to hell. I, I think that's right. We will have a desire for the word of God. It says in 1 Peter that as newborn babes, you are to desire the sincere milk of the word. Something is going to happen, strangely, where you are going to be interested in and love the word of God. You're going to want to pray. You're going to want to sing. You are not going to be able to live the way that you once lived. In the summer of my salvation, summer 1977, one of the indicators that God had saved me happened um, when something strange happened in my heart. Now, please understand what I'm about to tell you. A, I'm not proud of, and B, I am not saying I became saved because I did this. I'm just telling you how God works in hearts. I grew up in Dubois, Pennsylvania. I was a bad kid. And when I tell you there was nothing to do in town, I mean there was absolutely nothing to do in town, as illustrated by the fact that my cousin and one of his friends who had just had a hernia operation came into town, and an 
older friend of mine who had a car. We were out riding around doing nothing as there was nothing to do. And we decided to go into a lady's cornfield and steal some of her corn. Then we went over to the base of the hill at Dubois High School. And there were some workmen's uh, wooden horses that were there. And we set the horses across the road so that anybody trying to drive out would have to get out of their car and move the horses to the uh, to the sidewalk. And we hid behind the bushes with ears of corn and we threw them at the people when they got out of the car. This is this is what we did. This was this was fun. And and uh, the and then when people would chase after us, we would run. We didn't think through it very well. The fellow with the hernia couldn't run, but he had a cane. And so when he was, when, when someone was chasing him, um, he proceeded to take his cane and beat the person that was chasing him. So not only did he get corn thrown at him, he got beat with a cane and had to move the horses out of the way in order to drive through. But this was Dubois, Pennsylvania in the 1970s. This was my life. God's been working in my heart, and and I had trouble sleeping that night. And I woke up the next morning, and I went to that lady's farm, and I said, last night, I, I came to your farm with some of my friends, and I stole some of your corn. And I'm very sorry for that. And I fully expected her to say, well, it's it's all right. Don't do it again. I said, is there anything I can do? And she pointed to her lawnmower and she said, yes, you can cut my farm. So for several hours, I, I and, and, and she didn't take her dog inside. So the dog is chasing me the whole time I'm cutting the grass. But even though it is hot and I'm out there for hours and I am cutting this grass, there is a joy in my heart. And why is this joy in my heart? There's joy in my heart because I'm saying to myself, I... This is strange. I am not the same person I used to be. Something has happened. I am now walking in newness of life. See, we grow and we progress at different speeds. But a non-negotiable mark of a Christian is that there will be a walk, a lifestyle, a newness of life, which is different than the way that we used to be. Now again, Paul is not telling them to walk in newness of life. He is saying, if you've been joined to Christ, you've been saved, you will walk in newness of life. And so I'm not asking you if you prayed the sinner's prayer. I'm just asking you, do you have a new life? And what evidence do you have of your new life? So what number two is in verse six. Remember I told you that this is the most complex verse in the text. Well, here's the so what. The so what is that if we're joined to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, we will no longer be enslaved to sin. Once again, verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, see that in order that, the in order that means that this was done for a purpose, in order that the body of sin, remember the body of sin is, that's your flesh, that's the indwelling presence of sin which will never leave you until you're flatlined with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would, so that is the intended end, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
By being joined to Christ, there's going to be a result. That is that we are going to have freedom. And there's no longer going to be the enslavement to sin. We will still sin, but there is a big difference between the presence of sin and the abiding, ruling, domination of sin. The enslavement of sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 among other things says that no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of heaven people say well i'm a christian i'm saved but i am habitually drunk no no you're not you're 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 you are a drunkard and you are enslaved to that you see before we were joined to christ we had no power over sin we may have wanted to walk away, but the option wasn't open to us. Why? Because we were enslaved. Sin spoke and we obeyed. But when Christ saved you, my chains fell off, my heart went free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. But once again, I'm not saying that Paul is commanding you not to be enslaved. He's not commanding you to do anything. He's just saying that if you are joined to Christ, then you are not enslaved. Jesus says in John 8, 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then two verses later, he says in John 8, 36, if the Son, that is Jesus Christ, sets you free, you will be free indeed. My wife and I, before we had children, used to have two dogs. Big dogs, about 80 pounds each. Golden, Labrador, Retrievers, Bob and Dave. And they lived with us in Columbia, South Carolina. They were yard dogs, never came in the house. Well, Bob and Dave were, were party animals. I mean, they loved to dig out from under the fence, go out into the neighborhood partying it up and and who knows what they were doing while they were out there they were just always escaping and so someone said get yourself and and i think i think that this is illegal in new york but it was certainly legal in south carolina get yourself an electric fence put it along the the bottom of the fence and 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 shock the dogs once and they will never go near that fence again wow we set up the electric fence Bob and Dave never went near it. My friend said to me also, he said, and you don't need to spend any money on this electricity after a couple of weeks. Just turn it off because they're not going to go near that fence at all. Sure enough, turn it off. Bob and Dave stayed exactly where they were supposed to be. They would never go near that fence. Why? They thought they were enslaved. Truth of the matter is, they were free. They could have gone into the neighborhood and they could have done whatever they wanted to do. They could have dug out in a minute. Now, the analogy breaks down in that we are not free to break out into the neighborhood to do whatever we want to do. But the analogy does hold in that sometimes we think that we are enslaved. The devil will lie to you. Your flesh will, will lie to you. And they will tell you, you are in this sin. You are not getting out of this sin. This sin has mastery over you. Get used to it. You are mine. Who's your daddy? I'm going to keep you right there forever. When in reality, Jesus turned off the electric. Like it, it, it's, it's gone. We are, we are free. 
I've often spoken about my mother's sister, my aunt, who was the town drunk, who got saved in 1959. She was rip-roaring drunk, fell down a flight of stairs, broke her back, and then in the hospital, on her back, she got saved. Do you know that when she got saved, her 25-year sinful addiction to alcohol was broken instantly? Why? Because he sets the captives free. And so I ask, are you saved? Doesn't mean that you're going to be sinless, but it does mean that you will no longer be enslaved to sin. Your union with Christ makes it so that you will not be enslaved. Which brings us to number three, and the final so what, that is in verse 11, and the most important so what, and that is to consider, verse 11. So, you also must consider, reckon, think about, concentrate, think. You better think. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in union with Christ Jesus. In union with Christ Jesus. You see, included in our gospel transformation, that's how we're going to start to live differently, included in this, in fact, I would say the most important ingredient in this is a change in our thinking, proper thinking. You see, in the first 10 verses of this chapter, Paul has made it clear that you are already dead to sin and that you are already alive in Christ and in union with him. And the application in light of these first 10 verses is the word consider. In light of the fact that you are already dead to sin and alive in Christ, you are to stop and to think, to meditate, to regard, to count yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. This reckoning or this consideration is not make-believe. It's not telling yourself that you're actually holy when in fact you know that you are not. It is not you pretending that the old man is dead when you know that he is alive and well. But what it is, it is an actual fact that we indeed for real did die with Christ and that we for real indeed were raised with him. And what difference does our thinking make when it comes to living our lives? All the difference in the world. In that, it is impossible for you to go back and to live the life that you once lived, and at the same time, be actively remembering who you are in Christ. In order for you to go back, you have to volitionally forget who you are. And you have to forget what Christ has done. You cannot simultaneously be thinking about who you are in Christ and living a life of habitual sin. Here's the final stot Quote, we are to recall, to ponder, to grasp, to register these truths until they are so integral to our mindset that a return to the old life is unthinkable. Regenerate Christians should no more contemplate a return to unregenerate living than adults would to their childhood or married people would to their singleness or a discharged prisoner would to their prison soul, end quote. And he is so right. If you think about it, 
when you are tempted to sin, there's one thing that you have to do in order to actually commit that sin, and it is you have to forget who you actually are, and you have to be someone else. Let's speak about pornography. About a decade ago, the way that we taught people, in part, to fight pornography would be to take a Bible verse and to stick it on their computer screen up in the corner. Something which would speak about walking in holiness. Whatever, just a a Bible verse. So what you would have to do in order to engage in the pornography is you would have to take that verse and you'd have to unpeel it and take it down because you couldn't be looking at both things at the same time. Now it kind of breaks down in today's society because you can't walk around with a big sticker on your phone. But you get the idea. The thought was, put that verse in front of you, for it causes you to consider, it causes you to remember. It doesn't make you feel guilty that you're contemplating pornography. What it does, it, it, it reminds you of who you actually are. You're joined to Christ in his burial and in his resurrection. The simple reminder, it is the preaching the gospel to yourself, the simple reminder, boom, will have an instant impact upon you if you can just consider. When I was in seminary, we had a softball team. We were playing against another Christian team from the seminary. We were losing. We were not hitting well. And the pitcher on the other team started to throw balls. Started to walk a few batters. And when he did... In an attempt to help my team, I tried to get under his skin, and from the dugout, I started yelling at him. Hey, hey, pitcher, pitcher, you just threw a ball. Not throwing a strike? Can't throw a strike. I don't think you can throw a strike. Ball two, that a boy, that a boy, two more. Ball three, hey, come on, one more, one more bad one, buddy, one more bad one. And 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 now, now he's getting frustrated, and the more frustrated he's getting, he can't throw a strike, and the umpire comes over to me, and he said, you need to be quiet. And I said, show me in the rule book. Where, where does it say in the rule book that you cannot speak from the dugout to an opposing player? And he said to me, you can talk to him all you want as long as you speak like a Christian. Dang. We lost that game. <laughs> I, why did I have to be quiet? Because he reminded me of who I was. This is not mind over matter. This is preaching the gospel to yourself continuously. This is saying, you've been joined to Christ in his death and his resurrection. You walk in newness of life as a result of this. You are no longer a slave, but you are free. Now, contemplate, consider, Think about the fact that you died with Christ and that you were raised with Christ. And that is what will give you power to live the Christian life. Simply considering who you actually are in Christ. What propels our union with Christ? Well, I think you know that. It's the love of God. We wouldn't be joined to Christ if it wasn't for the fact that God loves us. I hope you've remembered that. I hope you never forget that. 149 down, 284 to go, which means what? 
Oh, it means we're getting there. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that by Your Spirit, You have lovingly joined us to Christ. And now, God, we simply ask that You would instill in our minds and our hearts exactly what that means so that we will indeed live according to what we in actuality are for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.